Part 1. Mental Health and Mental Health Conditions 1. Do I need help? I never really believed them to be voices because I knew the people that I was talking to and they were real people. They were alive. So I thought that it was more of an elevated sense of communication, like we were talking on a different level. Like our brains were strong enough and powerful enough to communicate in a way where we didn't have to use our mouths. Lloyd Hale, South Carolina. My friends pointed it out to me at first. They would call me hyper, but it wasn't a typical type of hyper for middle school kids. I was frenzied. I felt like I was swept up in a hurricane of sorts, and I kept trying to find a landing, but then I just kept on blowing higher and higher, and I couldn't control what was going on. I was 12. Diana Chow, California. Not only did my son lose interest in all his hobbies, and he'd started isolating and his personality was changing, but he also wasn't taking care of his business anymore. A couple times a week, he'd be on the highway somewhere or on the road with his gas tank empty, and we would have to go take gas to him. He used to be responsible and could think ahead and plan, and he just wasn't anymore. Angela Brisbane, Missouri, on her son, Michael. All people experience mental and emotional pain. At times, we are sad or anxious, or we feel isolated from others. We may stop finding pleasure in things we used to enjoy, or we find ourselves in jobs, environments, or relationships that don't work for us. We grieve when loved ones die. We have trouble sleeping or getting out of bed in the morning. For most of us, these difficult experiences pass with time. We work through our struggles absorb our losses, make changes in our lives for the better. Some of us change our state by exercising, improving our sleeping habits, being with friends, working, or taking a trip, literally getting a change of scenery. Others find their way by talking to family and friends, going to a grief support group, or engaging with their faith community. We find solace in connecting with or giving to others. The fog lifts, the pain recedes. We find ourselves older and wiser, having learned that we can get through something difficult. But for some of us, sometimes, the mental and emotional pain digs and grows. We seem unable to make our way through the fog, unable to live life the way other people seem to be able to do. We may feel disconnected from the rest of the world, numb, afraid, desperate, unhappy, or unexpectedly irritable and having paranoid thoughts. Ending the pain may become a recurrent thought. This internal experience may arise not just from our current life circumstances. Instead, it can come from something that is happening in our brain, from something that happened long ago or from some biological or neurochemical process that we have no control over. Because mental and emotional pain is an inevitable part of the human experience, 
It can be difficult to recognize the difference between the normal ups and downs of living and a mental health condition, whether in ourselves or in another person. How do you know that you or someone you love has a mental health condition? How do you know whether or when to seek help or in intervene? While many physical health issues make themselves known through measurable physical metrics, blood pressure, high sugar levels, the symptoms of mental health conditions can cloak themselves in emotions, thoughts, perceptions, and behaviors not easily distinguishable from our usual selves. Mental health conditions may manifest differently from person to person. Sometimes changes are noticeable to others. Other times, they're not. It can be easy to miss brain-based symptoms in ourselves and in our family members. It can be difficult to evaluate and critique our own thinking. Someone who is depressed, for example, may think, my level of unhappiness is keeping me from functioning well and enjoying life as I once did. I better get help. But someone with depression may instead think, the world is a bleak place. I am a failure and in so much pain. Ending it all may be the only way out. One of the cruelest symptoms of major depression is hopelessness. People experiencing it may not ask for help because they believe there is no help to be had. When depression is treated effectively, this feeling ebbs over time. But in the moment, we may be convinced that our outlook is a logical response to immutable facts and that the people trying to tell us otherwise, or worse, cheer us up, just don't get it. Recognizing symptoms in our own thinking is particularly challenging for people experiencing the onset of psychosis with symptoms such as hallucinations or delusions. One of the people I interviewed, Mike Smith of Wisconsin, reported this exact phenomenon. He was hearing voices for years before he realized this was not everyone else's experience. Mathematician Josh Nash won the Nobel Prize for developing game theory, which he accomplished while he was ill with schizophrenia. When he was asked why he hadn't seen that his hallucinations were not part of reality, his answer, as Sylvia Nazar reported in her biography of Nash, A Beautiful Mind, was that they came to me the same way that my mathematical ideas did, so I took them seriously. In addition to the self-awareness challenge, there's no objective mental health equivalent to blood work or a blood pressure cuff to help us ascertain that someone is ill or with what illness. We know that mental illnesses are real and common, but they emerge from a brain with about 100 billion neurons, give or take a few billion, that we do not yet fully understand. We aren't yet able to pinpoint the precise brain elements and processes that contribute to a disordered mood or thought experience, nor do we fully understand the interplay of genetics and environment in the formation of mental illnesses. We only know that they are both somehow involved and that they interact. Genetic and environmental risk for mental health conditions travels in families just as it does for diabetes or cancer. 
but not all members are affected equally. Some are not affected at all. Some may have a vulnerability that might be expressed under certain stressful conditions, and some will develop a life-threatening condition. Not only does each of us embody a unique set of genetic influences, we each draw upon or are influenced by a unique combination of strengths, talents, culture, belief systems, and family relationships. Mental illness isn't always a simple black and white, yes or no matter. Symptoms and experiences change over time and can improve or worsen as we age. A person living with post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, can have a great year and then get re-triggered by a specific stress and re-experience symptoms such as flashbacks and nightmares. A person who lives with bipolar disorder will have periods, sometimes years, of high functioning between episodes. People who have a vulnerability to addiction or to depression may be prone to a reoccurrence under stress, like the loss of a relationship or humiliation at work. One person told me, Recovery was perishable, like food in the produce section. With rare exceptions, we do not know what causes mental health conditions, and we do not know exactly how some of the most successful services, treatments, and strategies for helping people recover from these conditions work. We know that traumatic experiences change the body and the brain, but there is much more to learn. Traumatic experiences are the drivers for PTSD, of course, but how exactly do they relate on a biological level to increased risk of other conditions such as addiction or major depression? We know what the protective factors for mental health and resilience are, such as stability and connection but we don't know how they contribute to this complex equation or how a person with many protective factors and no trauma can still develop a mental illness. Truth be told, we don't even have a good term. Mental illness is an imperfect label to describe these many faceted experiences that also often involve the body. Example, panic, trauma, eating disorders, addiction, depression, and mania. Formal definitions of mental illnesses have evolved over time, but living with a disorder or condition is an experience that textbook definitions do not adequately describe. For example, is post-traumatic stress really a disorder? The response to traumatic events that we know called PTSD, is a series of body and mind experiences rooted in the evolutionary drive to protect ourselves. Some argue it may be better classified as an injury response, nor do these diagnostic definitions incorporate any recognition of a person's strengths and capacities, or of the impact of culture and social norms on our experience of behavior and illness. It's not just our rudimentary knowledge of the brain that inhibits our understanding of mental illness. What we know, or think we know, has also been limited by an unfortunate historical legacy. For centuries, 
we have somehow collectively agreed that if the most complex organ in the body has a disturbance and provokes a mood, thought, or perceptual experience that results in behavioral issues, we need to retreat to shame and isolation or to lock the disturbed person away in an asylum or, in more recent times, in a correctional institution. We have had decades of insurance companies failing to cover many basic mental health-related services, thus perpetuating the idea that these all-too-real concerns are somehow not legitimate. Underfunding, discrimination, isolation, and shame are killers in our society, and these issues all contribute to the people being denied help or receiving inadequate services as well as raising their risk of suicide. In a society that has long sidelined mental health conditions, it can be hard to recognize and accept that you may have one. Because our society glorifies self-reliance and independence, it can also be difficult to accept the need for help. We must learn to recognize that the common refrains to snap out of it or to pick ourselves up by the bootstraps reflect a lack of understanding about the nature of mental health conditions. The idea that we can get better through sheer force of determination is not entirely wrong. Some people do get better over time through self-care, the support of friends and family, or just continuing to live life and put one foot in front of the other. But that model doesn't always work, and thinking about recovery from this perspective in all circumstances is unhelpful. One of the things we do know is that getting help earlier improves outcomes. It is much better to intervene in stage 1 cancer, which is local, than stage 4 cancer, which has spread to other parts of the body. The same early intervention public health principles hold true for mental health and illness. We have managed to learn a great deal about the pain, particularly in the last half century. For example, developments in imaging that allow us to watch the brain in action and in our understanding of genetics have afforded us new ways of understanding brain function and have increased the potential for identifying biological markers akin to blood pressure. But while these research developments represent a stunning leap forward in our scientific understanding, they are not yet ready for practical application in helping people who live with mental health conditions. In part 4, I ask some leading researchers in the brain science field to describe some promising areas of research with potential practical applications. For example, the recognition that circuits are part of the brain's makeup has inspired research into magnetic and deep brain stimulation. There is emerging research on the effectiveness of psychedelics for treating trauma and depression and researchers are exploring the possibilities for truly personalizing treatment for major depression rather than relying on educated guesswork. All this research is evolving, and the National Institute of Mental Health 
N-I-M-H, and NAMI websites are good places to follow new practical developments that flow from this science. In truth, however, the most helpful things we have learned about mental health conditions are from people with lived experience. They have taught us that mental health conditions are just that, exemplifying that people are not their illnesses. People with mental health conditions also have a lot more expertise than professionals do about the process of recovery, how people survive and thrive, not just despite a mental health condition, but in the process of reckoning with it and building a life worth living. As Kimberly Comer of Florida told me, my meds help me deal with my symptoms, but my skills help me build a life. People who have been there can best articulate what mental illness is in human terms. In reading their stories shared throughout this book, you may begin to identify with what they felt and recognize yourself or a loved one in their descriptions of their mental illness, their accounts of when and how they knew they needed help, and their journey to discover what worked best for them. Do I need help? The best way to assess your blood pressure is to take it. It is almost impossible to assess blood pressure without a basic measurement. People used to have to go to the doctor's office to get their blood pressure checked, but now home monitors help make it more accessible, even if they are not 100% accurate. Getting a blood pressure reading at home or at a pharmacy isn't often precise, but it is informative. It can let you know if you need to get the reading done by a professional, and that you may need help to get your physical health in check. Blood pressure can quietly go awry until there is a serious consequence. Mental health can go awry too, sometimes quietly and sometimes not so quietly. In either case, you need to get an assessment to figure out what's going on. If you can do an assessment with a professional, that is optimal in terms of quick access to a reliable interpretation and planning next steps, but there are also a lot of screening tools accessible online to help you make an initial directional assessment on your own. These mental health screens help you get a ballpark estimate of what your experience may mean about your mental health relative to the experience of millions of other people who have taken the same assessment over the years. Screening tools have been well studied for validity and accuracy, but they are the mental health equivalent of the home blood pressure cuff. When Marty Parrish of Iowa got a very high score of 25 out of 27 on the PHQ-9, the most common tool for depression screening. Both he and his psychiatrist saw that he was not responding to the treatments that had been tried and needed an urgent new approach for his very serious depression. He has now had four good years of life and love after treatment with a technique called repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation, RTMS. 
The PHQ-9 screening measurement was a turning point in changing his treatment and improving his symptoms. Though Marty is clear that his wife, Peggy, is the most important factor in his recovery. The easiest way to first assess whether you or a loved one need a more in-depth mental health evaluation is to use one or more of the many validated screening tools now available online. Mental Health America, MHA.org, has collected the best tools for identification of risk for the most common major mental health conditions, including major depression, mania, anxiety, PTSD, psychosis spectrum, eating disorders, and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, among others. These screening tests are often the same ones you'd be given at a clinic or doctor's office. The tests are not diagnostic, meaning the test alone is an insufficient basis for determining an official diagnosis, but they may indicate your level of risk for a treatable condition and help motivate you to get a formal assessment. One way to look at warning signs is to look broadly at the symptoms that can be part of a mental health diagnosis. These can look nonspecific, but a combination of symptoms may indicate a possible mental health diagnosis. There are overlaps with normal behavior in some cases and especially early in the course of an illness process. How long someone has had a particular symptom or manifested changes in behavior is also relevant in making a diagnosis. However, not every concern is necessarily part of a mental health condition. Some symptoms and experiences that could indicate a mental health assessment is warranted are feeling very sad or withdrawn for more than a few days. Change in social drive or interest in connection. Seeing, hearing, or believing things that aren't real. Culture is important here. Some people within certain communities and cultures may not interpret hearing voices as unusual. Trying to harm oneself or end one's life, or a preoccupation with this idea. Excessive use of alcohol or drugs. Drastic changes in mood or intensely changing moods. Severe, out-of-control, risk-taking behavior that can cause harm to self or others. Changes in sleeping patterns. Extreme difficulty concentrating or a change in thinking or memory. Sudden, overwhelming fear for no reason, sometimes with a racing heart. Persistent physical discomfort or pain without a medical cause. Intense worries or fears. Significant weight loss or gain. Screening tools are a good way to sort these nonspecific symptoms. If you get a concerning score on an assessment, contact your primary care provider or a licensed mental health practitioner to help answer the questions raised by the screening test. For family members, does my loved one need help? 
Determining if a loved one would benefit from an assessment for mental health condition is often challenging. It can be also hard to bring up the topic at all. Mental health symptoms can be confusing and specific and are sometimes understandably concealed due to shame or lack of awareness. It can also be easy to overlook the slowly developing symptoms. For teens, it can be difficult to discern what is and isn't in the normal range of development. For a while, Karen Yeiser of Ohio thought that her daughter Bethany's increasing withdrawal from family and friends after she went to college was just a sign of emerging adult independence and her becoming more of who she was. Since Bethany had long been intensely focused on excellence in academics and music, Bethany also had good, rational explanations for her withdrawal. It took a long time to get Bethany diagnosed, for her to understand her diagnosis, and to get help that worked. Most people, even some clinicians, would miss these subtle emerging symptoms. Sometimes the picture is clearer but the underlying cause is not. A major change in a teen's energy, social drive, and school functioning are indications for concern. This pattern could be explained by a medical condition like mononucleosis, but it could also be symptomatic of a major depression or an indication that the teen is self-medicating or experimenting with mind and mood-altering substances. Ruling out medical issues can be important, so helping to arrange a meeting with a primary care provider is often a good first step. There are some broad principles that may help you recognize that a loved one may be experiencing or potentially vulnerable to a mental illness. Think young. More than half of all mental health conditions manifest before age 14 and three quarters by age 25. Many of the people interviewed in this book could look back and see clearly that they had symptoms, often anxiety, depression, or impulsivity, in their elementary school years. Some noticed nothing until late in high school or in their early 20s. Others used substances to change their underlying feeling state. Some discussed their concerns with their family, though many did not. Chapter 7 focuses on developmental aspects of mental health. Stressful experiences affect developing brains until age 25. Stressors like bullying, divorce, and traumatic events during childhood raise a person's risk for mental health symptoms in childhood and beyond. The Adverse Childhood Experience Study, ACE, one of the largest studies ever conducted on the link between trauma in childhood and later in life well-being highlighted the need to understand these risks and the need to support individuals affected by childhood trauma in developing resilience. This is developed in Chapter 6. Negative thoughts and feelings may be mistaken for facts. People who are depressed may feel unlovable or forgot they, they have many strengths and talents. The cognitive fog of depression makes it difficult to recall these essential and sustaining truths 
even if they were well known to them only a few months prior. Negative thinking and hopelessness are part of the condition of major depression, and it is very hard for someone to critically assess for themselves what is a feeling and what is a fact. This is particularly true when this is someone's first experience with hopelessness and negative thinking, but it can still be the case when symptoms come back after a period of relief. The person may know at one level that their experience marks a recurrence of an illness process that they have seen before, but their dashed hope that symptoms were gone forever may be a more powerful force than intellectual insight. Take note of patterns and family history. If a person has had a previous episode of depression or mania, that presentation is often going to resemble the next episode. This pattern can be quite specific. A specific sleep change, or the use of particular words or phrases, can be a signal for the reoccurrence of a manic episode. For example, this signal can help to identify earlier intervention to prevent a more intense episode. While we cannot pinpoint the exact contribution of genes, we do know that a family history elevates risk. Nikki Rashes of Illinois, who is now a manager of national education programs at NAMI, was finally convinced that she might have bipolar disorder only when her mother, Sally, laid out the extensive family history of mood and related disorders. My mom is my hero to this day, Nikki told me. When I was first diagnosed with bipolar disorder, she finally talked to me about my family history. First having that word put to it, bipolar disorder, helped me to see that, okay, there's something legit going on. And then knowing my grandma suffered from extreme depression, my uncle with bipolar disorder, this isn't just me being strange and me losing my mind. There's something seriously happening. It all started to make sense. Nikki's mother also used her knowledge of family history to inform the doctors Nikki was working with, though it took persistence to get them to hear it. I had explained to that first psychiatrist the family history that I was sure that it was bipolar because of her ups and downs, Sally said, and she just didn't believe it. Well, it took four psychiatrists before we found the one who did. Trust your gut. You know your child or family member. If you are concerned, don't ignore that. If another family member or someone else you trust is concerned, pay attention. Sometimes we are too close to notice day-to-day -day changes that someone else may see more clearly. Listen closely. People describe emotional distress in many ways, from physical symptoms, often stomachache or recurrent headache, to statements about wishing to be free of pain or fear. Some children and teens are more prone to showing distress rather than discussing it, as every school nurse knows. The safer a family member feels, the more likely they are to share their experience with you. If they do not or cannot discuss it, 
please remember that these are hard conditions to acknowledge and accept, and this is not a commentary on your parenting or your relationship. Get to yes on an assessment. We are all experts in our own feelings, thoughts, and actions. It is easy for people to feel ashamed of a mental health challenge and then to act with defensiveness. I encourage you to remember this as you engage a family member on a potential vulnerability. Try to focus on an empathetic understanding of the distress your family member is showing or telling. Problems with sleep are common, not usually a source of shame in our society and a key to many mental health conditions. So if the person you're concerned about says they're having sleep trouble, that can be a great place to start a conversation. If you can get to yes on any aspect of what they see that you also see, for example, excessive sleep, insomnia, or fatigue, you may be able to leverage that to get your loved one into the pediatrician's or primary care doctor's office. Some people will openly discuss their persistent sadness, feelings of panic and anxiety, or a change in the thought patterns. Some will not. The key is to keep the conversation going and to remind the person that you love them and are here to help them problem solve now or later. There is a technique called motivational interviewing that can help support a person to move ahead even if they are ambivalent about making a change. In this model, you don't press your loved one into action, but rather engage them in a discussion to help them move ahead in their own way. William Miller, who developed the technique, explains it further in Chapter 17. Knowing how to help someone get an assessment can be challenging and very specific to the individual and the family system. Mental health clinicians have seen the challenge of engaging someone into care before and may be able to offer you specific advice and strategies. NAMI has hundreds of locations around the United States, and people at your local affiliate may be able to provide helpful support the benefit of their experiences, and knowledge of local services. Chapter 3 addresses in more detail how to go about getting an assessment, as well as longer-term treatment. Be gentle on yourself. There is no perfect way to identify mental health symptoms. You are unlikely to have been given any training in this important area. If you are like many people, You have been taught it is better to keep concerns to yourself or to power through in the hopes that, with time, the symptoms will pass on their own. This may work, but often it does not. If you are concerned about a family member who is not sharing their experience with you for any number of reasons, it can be hard to have a dialogue. The first presentation of a mental health condition is commonly the most difficult to identify and seek help for. Ideally, that experience can inform discussions, collaboration, and future planning. Once you recognize that you or a loved one may have a mental illness, the next step is to obtain a diagnosis. A 
mental health diagnosis and its ramifications is a continuous learning process for all members of the family. And the more you can engage in that process together, the better the experience is likely to be. Remember, while diagnosis is often critical to inform decision making, a person is not their diagnosis. This is the paradox of diagnosis that will be the focus of the next chapter.